Hello, and welcome to the Vineyard Church Springbrook podcast from right here in Alcoa, Tennessee. We post our Sunday messages here each week and the occasional special announcement or series. You can visit vineyardchurch.us and select Springbrook from the menu to learn more about us or to access our audio archive. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. And now, here's the episode. Good morning. My name is Avery. Our scripture today comes from Luke 15, uh, 11 through 32. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told him this story. A man had two sons. The youngest son told his father, I want to share... Uh, I want the share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide the wealth between his sons. A few days later, the younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. <laughs> About the time the money, his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent, to him, sent him into his field to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both you and heaven, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father uh, saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working, and when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is in the back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of a safe return. The older brother was angry and would let him go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast uh, on my prostitutes. You celebrate by killing the fattened... Wait. For a feast with my friends, yet when the son of yours comes back after squandering your money on his prostitutes... You celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. This is the gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. Good job. (laughs) You did. I like to try to give first-time readers 50,000 verses to read. Thanks, Avery. You're the best. I hope if you have kids, they have friends like Avery, like mine do. Um, Let's pray. 
Jesus, uh, thank you for this place. Thank you for these people. And I'm thankful for moments together. And I just pray that you would, uh, I don't know, we believe that you're with us. I pray that you would wake us up to your presence in the next few moments. Thank you uh, that you're with us and that you're for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, so I wonder if you have like a party story, like a go-to if the night's getting slow or low and you're like this party or this story kills every time. My dad, uh, if you know my dad, he is just a library of party stories. Um, and so when I was prepping for today, I asked my kids, I was like, what's like the one story I tell that you think is incredible? And they both answered the same way. And it was, I can't really think of any stories <laughs> like that, which is really they don't know how offended I was. Um, so I'm not going to tell my story. My, uh, I have a friend, Seth, who lives in New York, and he has the best party stories. Um, and part of that is because um, he's, he's like an urban missionary in New York. So a lot of what he does in New York is what Chad will do when he moves to Atlanta. Um, and Seth's context for doing ministry is that he pretty much hangs out with uh, immigrants and then um, folks who have been in gangs, which are not necessarily the same thing. Um, and, and so he, he has these incredible stories. And one of them is, is actually one of a guy who's become one of his best friends who he um, just like met in his neighborhood at this bar in his neighborhood. And his name's June. And um, if you've read Lost Faith, the book we've been hawking for months, uh, his name's Juan in the book. So, uh, but his name's June. And June um, has a a really uh, interesting backstory. He was um, a very successful drug dealer in Seth's neighborhood in the Bronx. And by successful, I mean he has a long and violent history of dealing drugs. And so in order to be a good drug dealer, you have to do some things. Like Seth will tell stories about them being places and seeing someone whose like body is, is, you know, like his hands are broken or whatever. And June will be like, that was me. And Seth's like, oh, I don't know how to respond. Um, and so this is kind of hanging out with June. And so they are at this bar that they go to all the time. And um, it's sort of like their little meetup spot. And a couple walks in, and he says it's clear from uh, the way that they walk in that they're not uh, from the Bronx. Actually, I think the way Seth told me is that uh, he said that they probably had a group on, and then they showed up, and they were like, oh, gosh, where are we? Um, and so they walk in, and uh, they're, they're sitting in this bar, and they, they strike up a conversation with Seth and June, and they, uh, they, they discover that this couple is in town because their son is playing in a baseball tournament. And and um, in Manhattan, they've ended up in the Bronx. Anyway, and so uh, they're asking Seth, they're like, hey, um, it, where is your closest sporting goods store? Um, because they had made it all the way to the city, but somehow, like, in the midst of equipment, they left their, their son's bat behind. And so they're like, where's your closest sporting goods store? We need to go buy him a baseball bat. And Seth's like, you're in the Bronx. Like, I don't know not here. That's where the, your closest sporting goods store is. And about that time, he says, June gets up. And he was like, hold on a second. And he sees him and he walks out to his car and he comes back in with his arms full and he walks up to the table and he drops three baseball bats on the table. And he said, will these work? And the people were like, oh, do you play baseball? <laughs> and June said, nope. <laughs> That's a whole story. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> it's my favorite party story. I want to tell it as my own, but not a, not a chance. I'm cool enough to know that. Um, but uh, the last few weeks, we have been looking at parables of Jesus, um, uh, stories that Jesus tells that give us clues about what the kingdom of God is, what the kingdom of God is like. And today, as Avery read us beautifully, we're going to spend our time in a pr- pretty familiar party story of Jesus's. Um, Parties are actually a really common theme uh, in Jesus' parables. When he tells stories, very often they have parties in them. Um, but to be honest, uh, Jesus' party stories are um, kind of turned on their head um, from our party stories because in Jesus' party stories, uh, unlike many of ours, the, the best and the brightest characters are not like the star of the show. Uh, in Jesus' party story, it's, uh, stories, it's usually the last or the lost or sometimes the dead uh, that are the stars of his party. So this story, um, it's often called the lost son, or maybe you've heard it called the prodigal son. And it is one of Jesus's most like quintessential uh, parables. Uh, Robert Capon, uh, a writer I love, he calls the lost son story, he says, it's the son by which all of Luke's other parables uh, go orbit around um, because it is so crucial to the understanding of who Jesus is and what the kingdom of God is like. Um, I'm going to uh, kind of, we're just going to work our way through the story with some observations and I'm really just going to follow Jesus's lead here um, and tell, re, as we retell the story, I, I want to do it in a series of losses, which is, I think, how Jesus tells the story. He tells it as a series of losses, a series of deaths, and then things being brought back to life. So uh, when you, uh, just sort of as a side note, when you read the stories of Jesus, this is um, sort of a penultimate theme of his, uh, lost things being found or dead things finding their way uh, back to life, death and resurrection. He Um, He uses his stories, he uses his parables uh, to offer us lenses to see patterns like that all over the world. Uh, Patterns where uh, we can see the world, the world that's filled with stuff of earth and also filled with stuff of heaven. And he offers us lenses to find uh, those patterns. Things, he's telling stories and he's like, see that lost thing over there? Just wait. Something is about to happen. See this dead thing? Just wait. Something's about to happen. Uh, C.S. Lewis actually, he, he writes about that, that one of the reasons that um, he was drawn toward a Christian worldview was that he started to notice these patterns in Jesus' stories, but then also in the world, that he watched uh, leaves die on a branch and fall to the ground and then reemerge every spring. When Jesus tells stories, they are giving us lenses for how to interpret uh, how we see the world, a world filled with these kinds of patterns. Uh, so, uh, the first loss in our story today of the lost son um, happens very early in the story when the youngest son comes to his father and he asks him for an early inheritance. Um, essentially, the son says to the father, you are as good as dead to me. Like right now, as your son, what I need from you most is what I get from you when you die. And so he's, the son is inviting this father into not a physical death, but a legal one. Um, if you if you kind of deep dive the Greek in, in this particular parable, you would see uh, that the word for wealth or inheritance that we read today, um, that the father offers the son, that the son demands from his father, it's, it's bigger words, or they are both bigger words and more all-encompassing than just money. Um, they're words that mean life or substance or being. 
Meaning what the father is offering the son, what the son is demanding and then squanders of the father isn't just a bunch of stuff. It's half of his being, half of his existence, half of his life. He's saying, Dad, I want in my world for your life to be over so that my life can begin. It's loss number one. And so begin it does. Uh, the, the boy's life begins. Luke says that the son spent all of his money on wild living. Um, I'm confident that we can all fill in our own blanks here for what uh, you think it means to have wild living. Uh, lavish living, wasteful and extravagant living. But then uh, in the middle of his fun, a famine comes. And his fun ends almost as quickly as it began. And we find our second uh, death or our second loss in the story. Jesus says that the son finds himself in deep desperation in a pigsty. And he's as good as dead. Uh, As Avery said, that doesn't seem right. (laughs) Right? We find the son in this very human moment where he realizes that the life he had, the life he was living is now over. And so now he's sitting in the literal opposite of extravagance. He's starving and staring at old corn cobs like they might be food for him. And so he weighs his options in this pigsty. Do I, do I stay where I am and let uh, continue on in like a trajectory of death? Or do I go home? I could go home and I could beg my father to take me back, not as a son, but as an employee. Maybe he would have me in that way. And that's what he decides to do. And so he he heads home and he, he's, he's, he's practicing his speech. I love that part of the story that he's sitting in a pigsty going over the words that he wants to say to his father. That feels like a very human uh, moment to me, sitting in a pigsty trying to get the words right. We do that, right? Like I really am convinced that the better my words are, the better chance I have of getting what I want. I think that's called manipulation, but, um, <laughs> but we all do this, right? Like we, we want the right words and that's what he's doing. And so he heads home, and then, and then we read this, verse 20. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. The son, the father comes running to the son, and the son, he starts his speech, but he doesn't even get to finish it. Did you notice that? He doesn't even get to finish it before his father grabs him. And he kisses him, and he immediately starts planning a party. He says, get the robe, and get the shoes, and get the ring, and kill the fatted calf, which is death number three in the story. He says this, verse 24, we must celebrate with a feast, for the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but is now found. And so the party began. It's the resurrection moment of the story that the lost son has been found, the dead has been resurrected, and it shows up in a party. This is my dream story. To me, it's, it's, it's here in this moment that the story actually gets the name prodigal. When I was growing up, I heard this story a ton, um, and, and I heard it called the prodigal son, and so I thought that the word prodigal meant like wayward or rebellious or something like that. Uh, The prodigal son, the rebellious boy who goes wild and disappoints his family. Um, But that isn't what the word prodigal means. Prodigal, uh, the word, means extravagant. More specifically, it means extravagant to the point of wasteful or lavish. Uh, Another definition for prodigal is lavish or liberal generosity. Generosity everywhere. Uh, Tim Keller, among others, argues that this story shouldn't uh, be called the prodigal son, but the prodigal God. It's the story of a lost son 
and a prodigal father, a prodigal God, the father who gives love and forgiveness and mercy lavishly, generously, liberally, extravagantly to a son who didn't earn that love. Uh, For most of my life, I thought that the scandal of this story uh, was the younger son, that he, he demands his father to give up his inheritance so that he can go lead this wild and wasteful life. But that isn't the scandal of the story. Because honestly, that's what young people do. Right? I don't mean that judgmental. Um, I mean that as human. Um, if I were to give my son Huck $10 and we were to walk into his favorite place on planet Earth, five and below, <laughs> pause for eye rolls. Um, and I, even if I was like, hey, we need this $10, we're going to eat lunch on the other side of five and below. So just whatever you do, don't spend that $10. Do you know what he will do? He will spend every dollar of it. He will spend all $10 and then he will walk up to the cash register with $10 worth of absolute junk and he would put it on there and then he, she would, or he would say something about uh, it's you know $11 because of tax and Huck would be like, oh, this is the first I've ever heard of sales tax and it's just this brand new thing they're trying and then he would look at me like, do you have an extra dollar? And if I was embarrassed, I would say yes, but if I was having a good parenting moment, I would say What are you going to get rid of? And then he would do what he always does. And he would look at the salesperson and he would be like, and the salesperson would be like, it's okay. (laughs) He is not a nonprofit. It is not okay. How this child has never paid sales tax, I don't understand. You might be someone or you might know someone that would walk into Five and Below and not spend your $10, but no one is surprised when a 10-year-old boy walks into Five and Below and spends all of their $10 on things that are worthless. Uh, The son doing that is not supposed to be surprising to us. It's not supposed to be surprising to us that the boy takes all of his inheritance and spends it on sex or drugs or gambling or whatever wild and lavish living, prodigal living. That's a bummer, uh, but, and I'm not saying that that's right, but I'm saying that that is not the scandal of the story. The scandal of the story, rather, is that first century fathers do not act this way. That's the scandal. First century fathers do not give up their very existence and their very being to ungrateful children who ask for it. They beat those children or excommunicate those children. They do not listen and obey. And they do not welcome those same children back into the family the first time they ask. And they certainly do not ever run. First century men did not Run. The scandal of this story is the father who runs down the road and takes his boy in his arms and says, you were lost, but now you're found. The scandal is the robe and the ring and the shoes and the party. The scandal is the fatted calf who had been prepared and was waiting for just the right time. It was a calf given up to celebrate the life of someone who didn't deserve the celebration. Sound familiar? The prodigal in the story, I think, is far more the father than it is the son. And I think what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of heaven is run by a God as prodigal as this father is to his children. A God who loves us lavishly, who is on our side, who is chasing after us, who will not stop. 
The next person that we meet in the story uh, is the older brother. Uh, we've heard about him. We've heard that there's an older brother, but it's not till the end that we meet him. And he, he comes in from the fields, and it turns out he's missed a whole lot. That made me laugh as I was studying for day, that he comes in. There's a whole party going on. He's like, what's happening? You know, you're like, a, lo- a lot, really. Um, but... Um, but so he comes in, and I feel like most every time I've ever heard this older brother talked about, and honestly, every time I've ever uh, talked about him, I, I think we have this way of kind of like reducing him to like a party pooper or a fuddy-duddy. Uh, and uh, if you're under the age of 40, a fuddy-duddy is like a boring person who doesn't do anything. <laughs> I heard that come out, and I was like, oh, wow. Um, anyway. And maybe that's fair. Maybe he is one of those. Maybe he is uh, boring. But I think maybe, it, maybe it's me getting older or maybe me getting less fun. Um, but as I was imagining this story this week, I just saw the brother differently. I think I understood his anger and his frustration and his confusion in like a new way. It makes a lot of sense to me that the oldest son would be mad. He's mad probably on behalf of himself, but also on behalf of his father at his younger brother who thought that their dad was more valuable dead than alive. If you think my dad is more valuable dead than alive, that makes me mad, right? Like, I get it. He's frustrated at the person who took his father for half of what he was. And I understand his, his plea for his own situation, uh, I was meeting with a spiritual director this week that works with our staff, and we were kind of exploring this uh, complicated relationship uh, that I have right now, and we were trying to look at it with, like, spiritual eyes. And at one point, the spiritual director, um, I was talking about me and this other person, and they said, um, <laughs> he said, uh, so I guess it's kind of like you guys are both going through the exact same thing. And, like, my whole body, revol- I was like, uh, no, 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 no. That's not how it goes because there's nothing worse uh, when you feel self-righteous than for someone to expose it. And I think that's what's happening with this boy. Uh, Nothing quite exposes it like putting you and the person that you think messed everything up in the exact same category. That's exactly what the father does by inviting the older son into the party. He places his two sons into the same exact situation, the same celebration. It's not a celebration just for a lost son. It's a, it's a celebration of wholeness, of what was lost being returned, that that's a celebration for their whole family, their whole estate, not just for one child, but for both of them. Both boys, they're different, but they're also similar in ways at the expense of, uh, or at the risk of, of exposing the older brother's self-righteousness. They're similar but different. They both are after what the father has to offer them. The younger brother may want his money, but we see the older brother kind of does too. The older brother, he wants what's due to him for staying and for serving, for not betraying uh, or not abandoning. The older brother, he also seems to want a party. He's like, you never even killed a goat for my parties. But what neither son seems to be interested in is uh, the kind of prodigal and lavish love that would actually throw a party. The younger son, he he returns, uh, not for extravagant forgiveness and lavish love, but for a job and a meal. That's why he comes back. And the older son, he wants what's due to him in service and fidelity. And then the younger son, he wants what's due to him in punishment. That's what they expect. What what the father offers them is nothing that they expect. What he offers them both is love. Love exactly where they are. 
love in a pigsty, and love working hard in a field, love that brings life to dead places and a celebration for what's been found, love that throws a party not just for one son, but for both, because finding something lost means something more whole in all of their lives, more alive in their whole family unit than it was before. I appreciate the father doesn't reduce his children into the stereotypes that I've reduced them to in my head. It's not good son and bad son. He loves them both. He chases them both as his sons. He invites them to the same party, the same celebration uh, that celebrates the wholeness that all three of them share. The father refuses to choose between his children. Or maybe better said, the father chooses both of his children to be his sons in the exact place that they are. The father loves the younger son before he's even finished his speech. In the same way, he loves the older son as he's cleaning off his boots. The younger son expected that his father would accept him in a new way, in a new role as a hired hand. But his father uh, welcomed him as his boy. And the older son, he expects the father's pleasure to come uh, to him when the father dies or kills the fattened calf to celebrate his loyalty. But the father says, don't you see? You are my boy. You already have everything that I have. You already have my love. You already have my pleasure. Now let's go celebrate it. The story reads of lavish and extravagant kindness to me. But if I'm like really honest with you, that kind of lavishness also makes me incredibly uncomfortable. Like wildly uncomfortable. Because, and this is maybe just me personally, I just, I feel like I'm in a season where I'm very much struggling to believe uh, how me, the person that I currently am, is the person that the Father loves. Like, I'm very comfortable with God loving you. I think he does. I think he's wild about you. And I'm very comfortable with God loving the future version of me. I say this a lot, the future version of me that doesn't cuss so much and has a better gut microbiome. I've been asked not to say that from the stage, so I'm just trying to work it in however I can. (laughs) Like, I'm very comfortable with those sorts of things. I'm, 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 I'm comfortable with God, or maybe that God loves me because he knows some future version of me gets it all together, and so somehow that love like filters in uh, to right now. But the me here today, I'm just in my life right now, I'm just really struggling uh, to connect, to let this current girl uh, be loved lavishly. Like, that makes me uncomfortable. Because I I know this current girl. But God, in his kindness, he keeps, I don't know, he keeps making me look at myself as I truly am, as the person that Jesus loves. And it's uncomfortable. Because the more I look at myself, the more I'm like, And the more I do that in the presence of God, the more lavish his loves feel. God in his kindness keeps giving me the grace of learning more and more and more about the me that the Father loves exactly where I am, right here and right now. In the kingdom of God, I'm learning that the me of today is loved by the Father today. I want to jump ahead to the me that I want to be, but he just keeps bringing me back to me in the middle of my speech, and he keeps inviting me to the party just how I am saying, I love you now. And I'm on your side now. 
And I'm chasing after you now. And I won't stop. So here's what I want to do. Um, we take a minute at this point in our service every single week. We call it Selah. And um, it's just like a quiet breath or pause. And sometimes we have scripture on this. We, we do different things. But um, one of the things we like to do is offer you a practice that we can do here in this room that you also could do anywhere else in your everyday life. You can do this in your car. This one is probably the easiest and most recreatable practice that we we do. Uh, it's something we've done in this room a lot. Um, it's called breath prayer. Uh, we're not the only religion to have breath prayer. Uh, the Buddhists have Gothas. The Jews have Shimas. We have breath prayer. It dates back to the uh, fourth century, to the desert mothers and fathers who uh, practiced breath prayer as a way of following First Thessalonians 5, where Paul says, pray without ceasing. And their way to do that was, was to learn to pray as they breathe. And um, it, it's, it's essentially just a way to focus very simply on one thing, which I don't know about you, but that's one of the hardest things that I do. And so it's just a way to focus on one thing. Um, the best way I know to uh, describe it is that it, it, it's like this prayer that sort of uh, moves the cobwebs out of your mind in order to make space for one true thing. There's nothing like magic about it. I don't know, I guess maybe a little when you give the Holy Spirit access to your physiology, stuff happens sometimes. <laughs> but it's not magic, it's just breathing. Um, so here's what we're going to do. Um, Misty, will you put the Selah slide up? I'm going to give you three options. And if you're here and you're like, uh, this is weird because I don't believe any of this stuff. Um, that's okay. Like you can just breathe. It is, it is perfectly fine. Um, but if you're here and you want to risk and you want to try, I'm going to give you three options. And here's how it works. Um, and you can do anything for this. I'll pick, sometimes I pick like a verse out of a psalm and do it. And I try to, that day, every time I'm at a red light, I try to do this breath prayer. Um, it's why I get honked at so much. But also, I'm a bad driver. Okay, so here's how you do it. So um, breathe in and breathe out. So you're just going to pick any one of these three, and we're just going to spend a few minutes, and it's just going to be quiet, and you'll breathe in. Uh, that, that top one, that's the one I do all the time. I stole it from Brendan Manning. Um, and so you just breathe in, Father, breathe out, I belong to you. And, and over and over, something happens in the, um, I don't know, repetition of a moment that allows one true thing to start to take up space in your body and take up space in your mind and take up space in your soul. Um, you'll notice they're all kind of based on uh, the story today. So uh, I'm going to not do the third one because I'm struggling with it. Just kidding. That's probably the one I'll do. Okay, let's pray, and then we'll just take a minute. I'll be quiet, pick one, and we'll sit here, and then we'll come to the table. So, Holy Spirit, we believe you're here. Would, would um, As we pray at the beginning, would you wake us up to your presence in this moment? And just pray in the next few minutes um, that no matter where we are uh, in our faith, the, the beauty of the story is that it leaves room for lots of, we're all in lots of different places. But I just pray for this one moment that we would find the same space of quiet where we can breathe in and breathe out more of you and your presence and your spirit. I pray for those of us who this seems like super weird. Would you know, give us maybe courage to risk and try something new? Pray for those of us like me who want to like manufacture some sort of spiritual experience in this. I just pray that you would uh, give us the peace to know that you're with us no matter if we feel tingles or no. 
So I just invite you in these moments to be in our breath. In your name we pray.